0: That, in essence, is the message of all the prophets that we could study. But this morning, our attention will be turned to the prophet Haggai. If you're not there yet, you might be helped to start in Matthew uh, and work your way backwards. You'll find it perhaps quicker than diving into the middle of your Old Testament. 2,500 years ago, God spoke through this prophet Haggai to stir the hearts of his people who had lost their way, who had surrendered too much of their time and energy to lesser priorities. Hardly a struggle that went away for God's people. We need to hear these words. And here's why. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think sometimes we find it simpler to turn to a book like Philippians and read rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice and we can immediately kind of grab up our lesson for the day we need to rejoice in the Lord and move on uh, the profitability of scripture seems so easy in some places but in other places like minor prophets sometimes it's hard for us to believe that all scripture is profitable well, what does a message from 2,500 years ago to a people in a specific circumstance do for us today? So when we approach these historical and prophetic books, we must make two commitments. Number one, to believe that indeed the Bible is profitable in all of its writings. And number two, We must make the commitment to do the mental and spiritual exercise required to see how it is profitable. Because we could believe today that the book of Haggai is profitable for us. That's what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. But will we commit to doing the hard work of reading it and trying to figure out, what was going on at this point in history and what, what was God saying here so that we can truly understand how it is profitable to us? If we don't do that exercise, if we don't do the hard work of finding that profitability, then we generally tend to take the path of least resistance. We, we, we entertain that antagonistic question What good is this ancient prophecy for me today? So let's consider Haggai the prophet. But first I want us to just think for a moment about this role of the prophet. Who were these guys? Sometimes we know a little about them. Sometimes we know a lot about them. Sometimes uh, just a name and a place. We don't know much about Haggai. But let's just... Place him among all the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and then all the lesser prophets that make up the minor prophets, and understand who these men were. What was their task? These prophets were God's messengers. And they were messengers specifically sent by God to reveal his truth. So God's messengers delivering God's truth to the people and yet they carried out this work by the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit isn't only a New Testament help to God's people. The Holy Spirit was helping God's people in the Old Testament, just not in the same way. It was, it was more of an occasional and a kind of a monumental kind of help. Whereas in the New Testament, Joel's prophecy promised that that spirit would be poured out on every single believer. So that the kind of power that we see in Elijah or Elisha to call down fire from heaven would be the same power at work in every Christian by the Holy Spirit to live out God's agenda. So the power of Elisha or any other prophet of old is the power that you have this week so that when anger wells up within you, you can say, no, I'm not going to go down that path. When lust rears its ugly head and you're tempted, you can say, no, the power that Worked in the prophets of old, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power of the Spirit poured out on the church in Acts 2, is the power at work in me to do right, to choose what is godly, to stay on the path of righteousness and not delve into all these little dark alleys that the devil tempts us to explore. God's messengers revealing God's truth By the power of God's Spirit. When we think of these prophets proclaiming God's truth, we're probably familiar with that old language, thus says the Lord. That defines prophetic ministry. If we want to think of ourselves today in any prophetic way, it would be because we're God's messengers speaking God's truth to people in the power of the Spirit. What's unique to the prophets of old and to the apostles of the New Testament, which doesn't fall to us, is new revelation. So while we fit in this definition, we're messengers of God's truth to people by the power of the Spirit. It's not new revelation. It's the same revelation God gave through the prophets and the apostles, thus making the foundation of what we call truth. But the prophets are marked by, and Haggai's four sermons will be strictly defined by that expression, the word of the Lord came. The message goes out to people. Sometimes it's God's people, the Jews. Other times it's to the Gentile nations. But that message always went by the power of the Spirit, Peter writing to the church, clarified this for us when he said, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enabled the message of these prophets. I want to give you just a couple of references here to the Spirit's work. In Ezekiel, chapter 1, Verse 28, and then I'll read into chapter 2 a little bit. Ezekiel is catching this vision of brightness, like the brightness of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard the voice of one speaking. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. It's an interesting experience that Ezekiel has, being told to stand so that he can receive a commission, but unable to stand. And so the spirit comes to him and enables him to stand. And that spirit now enabling him carries forth this mission. I'm sending you to my people. It's a spirit ministry. When Haggai speaks, he is speaking the word of the Lord by the spirit of the Lord. In Micah chapter 3, Micah says this, The seers, meaning those foretellers of the future, shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Those who were setting out false prophecy, not speaking for the Lord, they're going to be silenced. But the prophet says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The prophets recognized that their power was not in their persuasive oratory, but in their defined authority, thus says the Lord, by the power of his spirit. Prophets spoke God's truth. To the people in the power of the spirit now I hope I hope you can recall just a few weeks back in our study of the divine structure of scripture that we looked at the prophets and realized as as powerful as they were and as good as their message was remember the the books of prophecy are designed to create in us a longing for the perfect prophet to come and so we're good to re- remind ourselves here that as we're studying Haggai, a prophet with God's message to the people by the Spirit, that he is picturing for us a greater prophet to come, who is Jesus. John 1, in the beginning was the word. Well, if the prophet is defined by thus says the Lord, God's word, then John 1 is significant prophetic language It's showing us that whatever we know of prophecy is really clear now because the very word that the prophet spoke is now among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is God, John said. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the fullness of anything the prophets ever said. And so the writer of Hebrews begins, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what we're looking into. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is our perfect prophet, who gives us full truth. When he dwelt among us, he was full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received. So note, as we study a prophet, that in our minds, we're remembering this book has its message for us, but it serves us with a reminder that we're supposed to be looking at a greater prophet. Now, as we study the book of Haggai and any other prophet we would look at in the future, we encounter two challenges in studying prophecy. The first challenge I'll call kindly prophetic fog, prophetic fog. In other words, there is at times in the prophets an intentional ambiguity, an intentional lack of clarity. Well, that seems to go against our thought of, well, I want to know what Haggai says, or I want to know what Isaiah is saying, or Zechariah, or any of the prophets. To say there is an intentional lack of clarity. But this is the nature of prophetic language, that we don't get all the details. We're told something, and it's truth abides. It's, it's there, and, it, and it's going to have some meaning for the people that hear it, but they might not have all the details. So you think through all the viewpoints of the book of Revelation, for example, a a book filled with prophetic-type language. A few more details may have made it abundantly clear if John was talking about Emperor Nero or if he's talking about some future world leader. And so those two views kind of carry the general themes of how to interpret Revelation. Is John basically talking about what happened in the first century in all of that language? Or is he talking about future events? Well, with a few more details, one of those sides would come out clearly ahead. As it is, we're left with kind of a confidence in our position, but there's still some uncertainty because the language just comes with a prophetic Fog. It gave us as much as God needed us to know, and the rest will be left to faith. This prophetic ambiguity is often related to our second challenge, what we could call prophetic form. What is it about the form of prophetic writings that is challenging? Let me give you two thoughts. One, the prophets used the language of symbols. There's symbolism in the prophets, which kind of goes against our grain of literal interpretation, right? It's supposed to mean exactly what it says. Well, literally interpreting poetry means to interpret it figuratively because that is exactly the design of poetry. If we're speaking of prophecy, the use of symbols is intentional. So a literal interpretation of the Bible demands that we wrestle with symbolic meaning or figurative language. Daniel's prophecy of earthly kingdoms comes to us in the language of all these animal details. A lion with eagle's wings, a jaguar with four heads and four wings, or later on a, a, a big goat with one horn out of the middle of his head, more like a unicorn. It's symbolism. It's symbolism. And so the great challenge of interpreting the prophets is to to figure out what is the common denominator between the symbol used and the truth being expressed. Because whatever unites those two helps us understand why they used that language. The form of symbols and figurative language makes the prophets challenging at times to interpret The other challenge of form is the language of imminence. Often the prophets will speak and their message, their warning seems imminent, about to happen. And yet at times the prophets are speaking of something a generation out or a hundred years out or hundreds of years into the future. But it was spoken of in the language of immediacy. It is about to happen. That urgency isn't misguided. Uh, It's not miscommunicating. It's communicating the urgency of what is true and the certainty of its happening, not necessarily the immediacy of the events. So the language of imminence, it's about to happen, and the language of symbolism combine to make interpreting prophecy quite a challenge. So if you've grown up in the church and heard prophetic you know, conferences or, you know, a Sunday night series on prophecy. It's all it's all trying to figure out all this hard language. And that's okay. The intent of the prophets is to have a bit of fog hanging in the air. We don't have all the details. And the the intent of the prophets is to communicate in figurative language, which isn't easily understood. So, Rather than fearing that, embrace that and keep plotting in your study and understanding of the message of these prophets. Now, the book of Haggai, in order to study this prophet and his message, we, we need to hear a little bit of a story. It's, it's history and it's Bible, okay? Keep those t- two kind of together in your mind, that what we read about in the Bible really is the history of the world. Not all the details, but we're kind of zooming in on the nation of Israel and seeing what unfolded all these years ago. Because if we know where we are on this timeline, the message of the prophet should make more sense to us. So if it's a familiar story, then bear with me, but perhaps we'll be reminded of this timeline of uh, the Bible and its events. And and to help you with this, I'm going to ask the guys to put a slide up on the screen, which is actually more just a story of your Bible, um, but it's going to help us understand when we talk about the exile and the prophets. So what you have there on the slide in the main tall boxes across the middle is the chronological story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis and going through Nehemiah. If you were looking to just read and the events in order, you would read those books of the Bible. But we know there are more books than that. It's just that the other books overlap the story at certain points. And so what you'll find helpful here will just be to see that during the time of the kings, you have all the prophets prophesying up there to the north, to the south, and to the foreign nations. Then we come to this gap in history, the exile. We'll talk about that. And then we have what is called post-exile. After the exile, the people return to the land, and there are a couple of prophets there. All right? So keep that timeline in your mind as we think through the events of history. In 722, the Assyrian Empire, kind of the world ruler of the day, comes down to Israel and takes the northern tribes captive. Ten tribes made up the northern kingdom, but they are easily overwhelmed by the Assyrians and carried away captive. Well, for the next hundred years, the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, that southern kingdom has a few good moments, a few good kings, you know, King Hezekiah, the boy king Josiah, but generally it's a downward trajectory. Uh, Just a few highlights, but almost the rest are all lowlights. Uh, They did not learn the lesson from the northern tribes being judged for their idolatry. A hundred years later, the Assyrian Empire is now being overtaken by the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar decides he wants to expand his kingdom and so he goes back towards Egypt and on the way he's going to lay siege to Jerusalem for the first time. That's in 605. That siege is effective, as effective as the Babylonians want it to be. They take some of the the young men from Jerusalem and march them back to Babylon to become princes in Babylon. Babylon. Daniel and his friends are among those who are taken in this first wave. A few years later, in 597, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar again goes back to Jerusalem, kills more, takes more captive, a little bit more destruction. In this wave, Ezekiel, who would become a prophet during the captivity, is taken to Babylon. Finally, about a dozen years later, 586, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of done with the puppet kings that he has set up at Jerusalem and he decides to just wipe it out. So he sends his army a third time to Jerusalem and, and this time they'll leave nothing. The walls will be torn down, the buildings burned, the temple dismantled and then burned. The leaders are executed. Only the poorest of people are left behind to live amongst the rubble and the fields around Jerusalem and the strong ones are taken captive and marched to Babylon. And this is the final and complete ruin of the temple and of the walls and of the city of Jerusalem. The exile that began with Daniel and his friends would continue for 70 years. 70 years as a time established by God that equaled the years of neglect of the Sabbath that the people of Israel were guilty of. So it was what we would call in prophetic language a recompense. What they had done would be returned to them in an equal amount, uh, the years of their exile. You can read in Psalm 137 of these people in exile. They sat down by the rivers and the Babylonians would say, hey, play us some of that fun Jewish music of yours. You know, in our minds, think of what? Fiddlers on roofs and such, right? And we think of like some kind of fun sound. What, what did the Babylonians want to hear? What was so unique that they were saying, play us those songs? And the people basically said like, you know, their, their instruments were hanging on like the little branch hangers. And they say, we, we don't feel like playing those songs because it reminds us of our homeland. Reminds us of our sin that cost us our homeland. So there they are in exile. The prophet Ezekiel and and Daniel, who's a leader in the land, are among the Jews during the exile, giving God's message to the people. So when you study Ezekiel, it's good to keep in mind he's one of the captives. He's there among them. Why is he saying this? What is he saying? What hope is he hanging out in front of them with all these visions and things that he sees? That shapes our understanding and our interpretation of that prophet when we know where he is at the time. Well, God raises up Cyrus the Persian. You see, the Persian empire was growing. Babylon was doing well, but Kind of subtly in the background, the Persians are expanding their empire. And little did Babylon know they were going to form a coalition with the Medes so that the Medo-Persian empire would rival Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. You remember when the handwriting was seen on the wall and Daniel was called to interpret it. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar's son on this night, the Medo-Persian empire is going to overrun Babylon. Seemed an impossibility. And yet it was true, because God had raised up Cyrus, the Persian leader, to overthrow Babylon. But the overthrow of Babylon was for a purpose. I want to just read the prophet Isaiah, who you can see was a prophet to the southern kingdoms back there in the time of 1 Kings. So way back before, hundreds of years before the exile, the prophet Isaiah had named a ruler centuries later that God was going to use as a servant of his to rescue his people from exile. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Speaking of the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Going on into chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his Messiah, his anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you, And level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. All of that said to an unbelieving pagan king Cyrus called a Messiah, an anointed one, the servant of the Lord, reminding us that the king's heart Though not a worshiper of the one true God is in the hand of the Lord, he turns it like water wherever he wills for the good of his people. God raises up Cyrus. Cyrus overthrows Babylon and almost immediately upon taking over as leader of the known world, issues a decree that all captive peoples can return to their homeland Including the Jewish people, and rebuild. And so we could turn to Ezra chapter 1 and 2 and read of Cyrus's decree being issued, and Israelites rallying all those whose hearts were stirred to do the Lord's work, it says, volunteered to return to the homeland. Almost 43,000 Jews about another 7,000 religious leaders, priests and such. So almost 50,000 in total are going to make the trip. And even that group is called only a remnant, only a little partial group of all of Israel. Most of them stayed in Babylon. By then, life is pretty good in Babylon. Not even to their fault, per se, but they've settled there. Uh, It's not a persecution, because you remember our story, uh, Esther is right there, kind of below Ezra. You see, you remember Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. Esther steps in, and in such a time as this, is used by God to deliver her people. They are free to defend themselves, and it ends up that the Jewish people become actually a very successful and esteemed group in the latter years of that empire. So they, many of the Jews, the vast majority of the Jews will stay there where they are in Babylon, but a remnant will return. As that exile comes to a conclusion, God's people in three waves, just as three waves were taken to Babylon, in three waves they return. In 536, 536 BC, the first wave of people returns to the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel. A second wave would come 80 years later with Ezra. And then about 13 years later, the third wave with Nehemiah. In Haggai now, or rather in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 2, we see that their mission is unfolding. These people have traveled all the miles from Babylon back to Israel, months of journeying. This remnants there, they they return to a city that has been burned, broken down. No temple stands on the, the mountain there. And their goal is to rebuild. And we have this time stamp. The seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Josedak and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they build the altar to begin some form of worship. And then we're told in chapter 4, in verse 24, after a whole chapter of opposition from the Samaritans and the enemies that were in the land, after a lot of letters and politics going back and forth to Babylon, to Jerusalem, about who's authorized to do what, all of that kind of piles up on the people of Israel so that we read, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stops. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The work stopped. They built the altar. They lay the foundation for the temple. In laying that foundation, you remember, some of the old men wept because they thought that's not going to be nearly as glorious and glamorous as Solomon's temple. Others cheered because they thought this is the greatest thing ever. We've never even seen a temple And in that mixed crowd we're reminded that the work was getting done. The foundation was laid. But By the end of chapter 4 we read the work of the house of God stopped. And it stayed stopped. It ceased until Darius takes the throne which would be 15 years later. Just kind of a Quick passing narrative detail there. It stopped, and it stayed that way. It ceased until Darius. Fifteen years go by. Well, all that trouble, all that intimidation from their enemies, and, and, and let's be honest, when we look at the prophet, we're going to see all the apathy in their own hearts brought an end to this great vision of rebuilding the temple. It was so exciting in Ezra because we saw all the ones whose hearts were stirred, the ones who were passionate about rebuilding God's house, they're the ones who came back. So James Boyce, who was the longtime pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, he describes these people as these were the cream of the crop. These were the right people, he says, at the right time, at the right place, with the right heart. But with the intimidation of culture and with the the apathy of our own hearts, it's easy for us as the right people, as the ones who do have a heart to do God's work, to get sidetracked by lesser priorities. You see, unlike So many of the the prophets during the kings who were rebuking dead-hearted people for idolatry, that is not the ministry of the post-exile prophets. They are talking to the best of God's people, the ones who said, we're passionate about God's kingdom, his temple, and we want to rebuild. But they too struggled in the day in and day out wear and tear of life. These prophets were trying to stir up the hearts of God's people to do kingdom work. And 15 years had passed. 15 years of going about life among the rubble of a burned city, walking through broken down walls, and 15 years of passing by a big open space on the Temple Mount where a beautiful foundation was laid but there was no construction being done. Fifteen years of resignation. Fifteen years of the good people, the ones who really did have a heart for God, but just were overwhelmed and felt like it was no use. In 536, they arrived at Jerusalem in all kinds of celebration. Seventy years of exile now ended. 536, and now when we pick up the book of Haggai, it's the year 520. Some people carried newborns on that trip, and now those kids are 16 years old and have never really seen the passion and the fervor for God that their parents once had. 16 years. Some people had gotten married about the time they got back to Jerusalem and now have. Been married 16 years and raised some kids, never communicating to them the value of their God. All their kids knew was apathy and, oh, I don't know, some, some construction project. This is the state of God's people when Haggai is called to the scene. Haggai and his contemporary Zechariah proclaim this message from God. And in four years, the temple is complete. And it's a pretty impressive temple, really. Herod would expand and renovate this temple in his day, in the time of Jesus, uh, and that temple would be destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. But the blueprint was A good one. The foundation is good. Uh, The core of this building is significant so that Herod would only make it better. For 16 years, the work is shut down and in four years, it's brought to its completion. Kind of breakneck speed. So this raises the question. What did the prophet say that stirred these people to get the job done? What did these prophets say that was able to overcome the threats of all the enemies around and even some of the political threats that were coming from back in in Babylon about who should and shouldn't be doing work? What what led people to say, enough of that, we don't care what they say, we're going to get this done? And what awakened them out of the the deadness and the doldrums of their Christian life to say, we've wasted 16 years, let's get to it. You can read Haggai this week and Zechariah and begin answering this question. What was said and how did the Spirit of God use what was said to bring about such change? The summary of what was said will be our theme in the book of Haggai. It comes to us in two references in the text that was read for us this morning and then two others. In Haggai chapter 1 and verse 5, we read, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Your ways. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward. And verse 18. Consider from this day onward. Engage your minds, the prophet is saying. Evaluate. Discern. Take a look at your priorities. See where you are. Because when you do, you'll see the task that is at hand. You'll see where you've wasted your life instead of investing it. Consider your ways. And that theme will unfold in four sermons that Haggai will preach and each one will be stamped with a date so that in the months of August, September, October, November of that one year, he delivers these four messages. Halfway through his preaching, Zechariah will join with his voice And this revival breaks out, and God's people get serious about living their lives, seeking first his kingdom, believing that everything else will be taken care of if they live by faith. Lord willing, in the coming four weeks, we'll study those four sermons to hear these messages that both challenge and encourage, a call to repentance, but also point to hope. Say, you have work to do. But ultimately, we take heart in a work yet to be done. The kingdom that will come with the Messiah. So for today, in just this introduction to prophets and to this prophet especially, what are some lessons for us? First, we see that our moment in history is but a dot on the timeline of God's providence. God worked through Abraham, and we can go back and put a little dot on the timeline for his years. We could jump forward to to Moses. God worked through Moses, but just for those few years. We could consider David or Ezekiel or Haggai, John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul or any other figures through church history. But we all just have our our one little dot on the timeline of this grand story of God's work being done. So lesson number one, trust God's control. Control. God has his servants all over the globe right now. Strange to think that someone like Vladimir Putin could be called a servant of God. But what else could he be? A rival of God? No, we have to understand that the leaders of the world are but pawns to God. He moves them wherever he wills. We can trust God's control because our our brief dot on the timeline of humanity is part of his plan, his good design. This doesn't minimize us at all. Oh, I'm just one little dot in history. No, quite the opposite. That, That one little speck of years that you're living right now are significant because God is working that in his plan. And so Esther, who stood in her place as a little Jewish girl, then ripped from her home to become part of the palace harem. But for such a time as that, brief time, a dot on the timeline of history, but significant and used by God when we take our dot and trust that God is in control. Now, it's one thing to say we're trusting God's control of the nations and everything will work out someday in the end. And oftentimes it's another thing to trust that God is actually using the circumstances of your job and your broken down car and the leaking roof, you know, and the last storm. And all these problems that we think are somehow out of God's control. And yet when we look at prophecy and we look at, Kings being raised up behind the scenes in years before prophets prophets are saying this is going to happen. God's got this. He's going to work it all out. We should read these stories and, and just stop stewing. Stop trying to figure it out. Someone else already has. Trust God's control. Whether it's world news you watch this week or routine hassles in your household. You can trust God's control. I'm not saying your, your reaction of heart response will be to like all those things. I would hope you don't like nations killing other people in other nations. I would hope you don't like injustices and all the mess we see in our world. You don't have to like your car breaking down. But you do have to trust God through all those things. So trust his control. Trust that he is accomplishing his plan, and that includes the circumstances of your life. Second, when we look at these good people, the ones Ezra said who had a heart for worship and making this right back in Jerusalem, we should understand that our good intentions are no match for the circumstances of life. You can resolve this week to be a good husband. Come back next Sunday and tell me how you did. You can resolve to read your Bible faithfully this week and to pray for all these needs that we mentioned, all these many needs just in our body, and and, and see how many seconds you log Or just measure it last week's time. And you'll realize our good intentions will get us nowhere. And this is coming from someone who I love resolve. I love intentionality. I love list making. So I'm not against resolve and and vows and such, that, that biblical concept. I'm just saying we have to recognize it is not in us to fulfill all these intentions, good as they may be, and resolutions that we make in our own strength. We are not capable of completing perfect righteousness. We need the grace of God in our lives to carry out any intention, to to realize any hope of being what we should be to our families, to the local church, to a world lost and in need of the gospel. So lesson number two receive God's grace. We, like the Jews who returned to build the temple, have had our flashes of spiritual zeal. I wouldn't doubt that many in this room would have been in that crowd because knowing the hearts of you, you'd be quick to volunteer and say, yes, use me, let me serve. I want to make that kind of impact. But we all know because we've seen the The spiritual fire in our own hearts, suffocated by circumstances and problems and routine of life, opposition. We know what it is to have the fire dim and grow cold. So lean on grace. When Jesus came, he came full of grace. And then John adds, from his fullness, we have received grace and grace upon grace. So we, we, we think we barely made it through that week and we might even have our spiritual wits about us to say that was all of grace. And then you remember our calendar starts over again with Monday and you think, how, how am I going to do this? And you begin to realize there's grace Upon grace, it's just never exhausted. You just keep plugging in and, and, it, and it flows. So receive grace this week. Note the good intentions, make the resolutions. After all, Joshua had told these people of God millennia before choose you this day whom you will serve. Do it. We're right to say as we leave this place, I'm going to lean on God's grace and I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. But just remember, it's not in you to accomplish that on your own. Pray often this week Lord, I need your grace. Help me to do this. Finally, when we are mired in apathy, and longing for purpose, like the Jews in that 16 years of drought. We must evaluate our priorities. We must be confronted with what God says about what my life should look like. What does he say I should be busy doing? What does he want me to do with my time, with my money, with the energy that I have and So few hours of a day. Lesson number three, we must hear God's word. This is our hope for rekindled passion. This is what these right people who had a heart to rebuild, but stalled. This is what they needed to hear. They needed God's word. What does God say? What does he want from us? So find yourself somewhere in this week in an encounter with God's word. Listen to it. Read it. Hear it preached and taught. But encounter God's word. Because apart from it, the fire can't rekindle. The 16 years goes on. The languishing continues. The drought extends. The coldness may increase. The apathy infect yet another generation. But somewhere along the way, we hear, thus says the Lord, consider your ways, and we actually do it. And we realize for some, it's going to be tweaking a few things. For others, it might be an overhaul and rebuild. But new morning mercies that are promised to us from Jeremiah are for just that. Taking what isn't where it should be, what isn't right, considering the ways that aren't pleasing the Lord and getting it all fixed. So that as you dive into Monday morning, it's not aimless and lifeless, cold. It's purposeful. It's meaningful. I'll parent today, showing my kids That we're gonna build God's kingdom. We're not gonna spend our days walking past a foundation where nobody cares what God wants to do in the world. We're gonna ready our kids to be those that inhabit the church, a church triumphant and a church advancing, not a church entertained and languishing. So, hear the message of Haggai Consider your ways. Be prepared to respond to the voice of the Lord to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word from 2,500 years ago. Would you ready us to hear your words to us, words that speak to coldness, words that speak to apathy, words that speak even kindly to those who need to think twice. Lord, you know our hearts. Do whatever work is necessary in this study so that we might come out in the end of it eager to do your will day by day in our homes, in our workplaces, in the life of the church, and in our witness to the world. Bless your word to us. Our hope is in it. May it light our path, even in this week to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.